Weird Al Yankovic, Sarah Watkins, Doug Benson, Ahmed Best, Janina Gavankar, Busy Phillips, Open Mike Eagle, the composer of Rogue One, Michael Giacchino, and even more people are going to be performing at the Join the Resistance Star Wars-themed book release slash benefit for public council, a nonprofit organization who provides pro bono legal services to underrepresented communities in Los Angeles. This is also uh, a celebration of the new book that Ben Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It's the first in a series, and it's Star Wars canon. It's about a bunch of kids who join the Resistance against the First Order. As I said, Weird Al, Doug Benson, this is going to be a super fun show. Our pal Matt Gorley of Super Ego uh, wrote a song years ago called Stormtroopers Are People Too, and we're going to be doing some stuff with that. It's going to be a lot of fun. March 8th at Largo at the Coronet. Go to Largo-LA.com for details. We hope you can join us for what will be a fun evening and a good cause. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers' Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight. Whenever the time is right, it's the writer's panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! We're doing a show about politics, and uh, I can't, and so, you know, we'll want everyone to focus on the show and not the personal politics of the writers behind it, because that was the point, was to create a show that was open to everyone in terms of being able to discuss politics. So, But that is my position on it, so I can just talk about it. But that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And look, I'm here with Barbara Hall, and we're going to leave that little preamble in, because that's an interesting <laughs> thing to talk about, and this won't come out till January. Right. So we'll have some distance yes. when it comes out. <laughs> yes. Um, but to do a show, a political show, mm-hmm. that is not necessarily about partisan politics, mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, West Wing, as much as it was sort of liberal fantasy, uh-huh. it walked the line very uh-huh. often, uh, especially in the first season. Right. So what is the show, what is Madam Secretary about 
to you, and how do you not make it about politics? Well, one of the things that's built in that makes it easier for us is that it's about the Secretary of State, the State Department, which means it's about foreign policy um, and not domestic policy. That's New York noises in the background. <laughs> um, and so, you know, those issues, when issues of foreign policy come up, usually, uh, you know, people in Washington, certainly people in the State Department, are in a position of trying to fix an international problem. And, um, and so that's not you know, that's not the same as dealing with legislative issues. Um, And it it creates a world that can be pretty um, nonpartisan because you're just dealing with international relations. Mm -hmm. And then later people take positions on decisions that were made or foreign policy decisions that were made, but not in the moment. In the moment, people are usually just trying to deal with fixing an immediate problem. It's almost a case of the week yes. format. Yes. I mean, but it's on this enormous scale. Yes. That's very interesting. So that that makes us a little different and and um, you know, I was curious to see if we could make a series out of mm-hmm. an international event of the week. Um, and we knew that we couldn't have, you know, the world in danger blowing up every week. But we but I thought we could find um, international uh, incidents that were, uh, you know, exciting and interesting, and and opened up the world to people to show how international politics work, and that people might find it interesting. And then if we could contextualize all that with this woman's home life and her every, everyday work life, right. um, I felt with those three aspects of the show we could make something interesting. I didn't know how much, how long we would be able to go without identifying political parties, mm-hmm. but we've been able to do it the entire time. And Is that still mm-hmm. the case? That's yes, really cool. even in an election year, we've been able to do that. <laughs> are you going to continue to do that? Um, we are going to continue to do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now that we've established um, him as an independent, mm-hmm. now that's an identified political party, but um, we aren't going to identify who represents the other two. So, so funny. Yeah. Um, and, and being an independent, I would imagine, opens up story area as well. I mean, any, any political path, even a non-path, mm-hmm. has to open up political, uh, uh, story areas for the, on the personal side of yeah. I mean, for one thing, we created uh, a viable three-party system in our show, Mm -hmm. which is um, an aspect of the aspirational quality of our show. Mm -hmm. We like to try to do politics the way uh, we find a common ground that we feel everybody wishes it would work that way. And I feel like a lot of people would love to see a real three-party system in the country. Mm -hmm. So we're doing that. And that um, opens up a whole new world of how politics can work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're going to be able to get a lot of stories out of that. And then, of course, we'll always have the um, personal stories right. to do. And, and, yeah, it feels like the personal stories are sort of where the show lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the stuff, you know, like we watch TV because we love characters. Yes. It's why we keep coming back. But I wonder, on the political side, are there is there a tendency or even discussion in the writer's room mm-hmm. about working things out? You know, mm-hmm. saying this is an issue that we want to talk about. How do we make some noise about it? Mm-hmm. And and that can be partisan. It can and doesn't have to be, I guess. Yeah, I think what we really prefer to do um, and have been successful in doing is take on each story and each issue um, 
in terms of showing people what the process is, hmm. what the real political process is, instead of what people think it is or what, you know, um, you know, so much about politics gets, gets shorthanded in the news and on social media. So we feel like the real strength of our show is that we can tap into something that we think everyone is interested in or, or could be interested mm-hmm. in and showing, pulling back the curtain and saying, this is what actually has to happen to resolve an issue like this. These are the steps you have to go through. These are the deals you have to make. These are what the discussions sound like. And we very much want to present all points of view, regardless of whether or not um, we personally believe in them. But we'd like to try on the, the point of view, points of view of, of all different mm-hmm. parties and cultures and and um, because I feel like that's what someone in the State Department has to deal with. So Sure. Well, that's also just good storytelling. It's just good storytelling, right? yes. I mean, it's not good. your characters yeah. to have different points of view. Yes. Um, let's go way back. We okay. talked uh, when we did the CBS panel um, about starting out with the, um, the, the falsy brand in mm-hmm. that camp. Uh, and great stuff came out of that. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about even before that, though. Did you start in comedy? I did start in comedy. Uh, tell me about that, please. <laughs> that's I'm my so dirty secret. About it. That's, that's awesome. Um, nothing's falling apart. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I I had a very circuitous route to to my television career. So I'm actually a pretty straight shot. But uh, once <laughs> I got here, but in terms of what I wanted to do as a writer in in college, I. Um, did everything except screenwriting. And my mm-hmm. concentration was in poetry, actually. And yes, my honors thesis was, was a book of original poetry. Um, and uh, But I got involved in journalism while I was there, and I really liked that, too. So, And I'm also uh, a musician, so I wanted to... to uh, be a music critic. So, um, and I also wanted to write a novel and maybe a play. The only thing I hadn't thought about was screenwriting. Sure. And so I. Well, and let me interrupt yeah. for a second, but, but why not? Um, well, why not? That's such an interesting question. I think because I grew up not really watching a lot of television mm-hmm. and not going to a lot of movies. It was it was mainly about. Um, uh, and that was about my upbringing, just being limited. You know, I grew up in a very small town, a long way from everything, mm-hmm. and um, I had, you know, sort of limited access to stuff. Sure. So, except for books and things like that. So, um, it took me a long time to really sort of plug into the culture, be very aware of it. Um, and my sister um, was the person who discovered writing for television, and she was a very pioneering television writer. She really? was the first woman writer for uh, MASH and for Hill Street Blues and so her name name is Karen Hall and so that's when I first became aware of as my sister moved to Hollywood to do that and I uh, moved to LA two days after I graduated college to uh, live with her and just sort of find my way as a novel. By then I was like, okay, I'm going to write a novel. That's what I'm going to do. And I did. I did do that. I I wrote a novel in like three months and and, uh, and, Which you can uh, do when you're 21. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. um, and uh, and anyway, so that novel um, got the attention of a, a, a TV agent who oh. said, "Do you want to write television?" And I and you know, again, I always say this: my story is not useful to anybody because it was an incredibly different industry. It's like if you had heard of television writing, hmm. there wasn't there weren't film schools in every university. Right. If you even understood that people wrote for television, and you had a, a decent spec script, you could get a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically um, the first room I was sent to pitch in was comedy room, which was. Um, hmm. 
uh, Gary Goldberg, um, Family Ties. Sure. So I pitched a story and sold it, and I wrote that, and then I got, and then work gets work. So, so I got other assignments. I ended up on staff at Newhart as a mm-hmm. comedy writer, um, and I was was very young and very surprised by what was happening. What What was it like in those? Especially in the New Heart Room. I mean, uh-huh. was it the? Be- Did you come in in the beginning of the show? A second it- season. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was a, a, sort of a hit already, right? Yes. Um, and were there big comedy names in that room, or big comedy personalities in that room? Um, well, when I came on board, there were only uh, three. Well, there was a Barry Kemp who created the mm-hmm. show, and that's a big comedy personality. Yeah. Um, Sheldon Bull and Emily Marshall and myself, and that was the staff. And then later, Miriam Trogdon, and that was wow. the staff. But what was, um, so it was really sort of quaint by today's standards, you know, it was a small room. But what was so shocking to me, just because of my personality, I'm a classic introvert. I am, I am the person who becomes a writer so that I can be in a room by myself, um, have an excuse to do that. And suddenly I'm in a room with all these big comedy personalities pitching, you know, acting out. You know, mm-hmm. bits and things like that, which nothing could have been more terrifying to me so than I have to do that. Learn to do it. Um, I didn't learn to do it very well. I mean, I was always very, very shy in the room. I was, al- I would always hit my stride when I could go in the room and write. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could prove it to you if you would let me go off by myself. Yeah. But in the room, I wasn't. Um, I was just, uh, I was just deer in the headlights for a long time. And um, I. Um, <clears throat> I loved comedy and I loved being funny, but I didn't like the room writing format. It just really didn't suit me. So I immediately went to my agent and said, I want to... Well, first I said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and, sure. he, and he sort of persuaded me before I threw away an, an entire career that other people would love to have, obviously, and too young to understand that right. you know what I had done, really. Um, he asked me to, to think about trying uh, drama. And, and I said, okay, but he also cautioned me that it's not that easy just to switch from drama to comedy. So, uh, but again, I was too young to understand that. Um, and I had a novel, and he represented Josh Brand and John Falsey, and they asked, um, he asked if he could submit my work, and they were two people who were willing to read novels. Uh, because, you know, John Falsey went to uh, Iowa Writing Workshop. It was just oh, I didn't that, yeah, they had, a, they had a much different approach to how they sure. were staffing their show. They wanted playwrights and short stories, writers, yeah. and things like that. So that was perfect timing, and they read my novel, and I got, I made the transition to drama based on that. Sure. But what really is sort of a, a hallmark of what I do is that I never really gave up on being a comedy writer. Mm -hmm. And so I have always tried to work in the drama format, which also includes a lot of comedy. Because if I can't, if I can't be funny, I'm not that happy, you Mm -hmm. know, if I um, ever had to work on a show that was completely serious, because that's just not what I do. So, you know. (laughs) Well, it seems like you've sort of touched those shows. Uh I mean, like Homeland Springs to mind. And it's a it must be so grim. <laughs> that was intense. You know, I, it was really intense experience for me on Homeland. I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I developed a lot of muscles that I didn't have. Interesting. Um, so. uh, because I had never been able to do just a straightforward suspense thriller before. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a form that I liked to watch, but I had never tried to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And and. Um, and I, it was a great way to learn because there is obviously such a specific process mm-hmm. to that. And, um, and I 
sort of observed and learned and figured out how to do it and then ended up using some of those muscles when I came to do um, Madam Secretary. Oh, interesting. Was it, what was that process like? I mean, you were, which season were you there? Um, the third season. Okay. Um, was it a lot of story breaking in the room? Yes. Okay. I, I figured it must have been. Yes. I mean, these are complicated stories that yes. telling and there's also again this character stuff mm-hmm. um, then but that part must have been somewhat easy for you um, the character stuff of course is what I was attracted to and, and thought I could make a contribution there um, uh, but I ended up doing a um, doing a lot more of the sort of suspense thriller mm-hmm. writing there what I, I mean this is sort of hard to put into words mm-hmm. and, and we can move on if you want, <laughs> but like what what is that different muscle? How do you write suspense thriller? How is that different from character and even the sort of, I don't want to say soap opera because that sounds pejorative, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, the relationship stuff that goes on in some of these other shows. Well, it's a, very, it's a very lean sort of storytelling. It's a very lean trajectory. You know, you start the ride and you don't let up from the ride. Mm-hmm. You don't go over here and have a moment for, you know, character and comedy yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and you know, I've done a little bit of it before I wrote one episode of ER, and mm-hmm. that, and I glimpsed that. Because ER, although in the later years they did a lot more character stuff, in the beginning it was just, we're, we're, we're turning the ride on now and we're not going to turn it <laughs> yeah. off. And um, so I sort of remembered that when I got there and I realized... Um, that was sort of the path to it. It's hmm. it's um, and uh, and just the way you plot those kinds of stories. It's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's 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 really singular too. Not always, but but oftentimes the 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 story you're telling is singular. They're not two other a, a B and a C story going right. along. Which that so. also seems really difficult. Yeah, I mean to stay on this one thing, mm-hmm. like you say, in a sort of unrelenting way. Yeah. It has to be. It has to be a relief not to do that. Yes. <laughs> well, it's always a relief, and like I said, I had a great time there, and I was really grateful for my time there because also I had started thinking politically, you know, um, mm. because I was there, and I had drifted away from thinking that way. The other thing that's interesting that I came to do a political show is that I was a political science minor in college, so it was poetry and oh, politics. Really? <laughs> I don't know, you know, I was trying a little bit of everything. So it makes sense. Um, but I was very <laughs> interested in politics, and it was part of my wanting to be a, 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 a music critic, if you will, because that's a political, there's a political aspect to writing about popular yeah, culture, and sure. especially if you want to write for Rolling Stone or something. So that was all sort of coming together for me. And then I kind of burned myself out on politics somewhere along the way mm-hmm. and had just started writing, uh, you know, Judging Amy was about the juvenile court system, which is something that I have a lot of interest in, um, mm-hmm. young adults, and uh, because I was a young adult novelist for a long time. So I understood that world, was passionate about it. Then I did Joan of Arcadia, which is a metaphysical show. And um, I'm really interested in metaphysics and, and hmm. thinking of physics and metaphysics, actually, and thinking like that for a long time. But I had gotten away from thinking um, about political stories. So it was very interesting that when I came to do this, that's where I landed. And it was great for me to have that year at Homeland to, to train my mind to think that way. Yeah, sort of re-engage. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Yeah. Um, I want to g- jump back for just a second mm-hmm. and ask you about... So you wrote this novel uh, as right out of college mm-hmm. that uh, this agent looked at. Did you then write a spec script? 
I did. I had a novel, I had a spec script, what and I had your, a one-act play. Oh, terrific. And that was, was my arsenal. spec script? I'm always curious to hear Taxi. what people did. What was it about? <laughs> Do you remember? Um, I remember it was about... Uh, no. <laughs> it, was a, it was a Louis story, that, that I remember. And oh. it was about Louis... Louis decides to become best friends with Alex, I think it is. <laughs> So it was about him trying to... That's it. Okay, it's coming back to me now. Louis deciding that he, he, he has what it takes to be someone's best friend, to have a friendship. Right. So that's right. what that was about. Uh, and then going into pitch, was Family Ties the first thing they sent you out to pitch on? Yes. What was... I mean, as an introvert, mm. what was the pitch experience like? Terrifying, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I had to learn a lot of things that I didn't even want to know how to do <laughs> immediately. And, um, you know, I had my sister to mm-hmm. guide me, and I remember she took me out to dinner and explained what a pitch was like and how to do it. And I remember the entire... And made me do a practice pitch. What did she tell you? Um, well, it, it's a lot like... You know, one thing I did key in to was that it's a lot like writing a thesis. I was an English major. I know how to write a thesis. You present your thesis, then you support mm-hmm. it. Um, it's like that. It's, it's just that it's oral. It's an oral thesis. And so once I realized, oh, this is just like presenting your argument and backing it up and then wrapping it up and getting out of it, mm-hmm. I, I realized that I could do that and I could have a, a plan that was a model that I understood. Um, so, um, you know, then I had to go do it. <laughs> so Right. You, you get yourself amped up and you go do it. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you did make that move to drama... Uh, what was the the first stuff was the falsy brand stuff? What kind of rooms did they run? They and didn't was have it a more room. comfortable for it. So that's that, no, it was heaven. It was heaven. In fact, it took me years to adjust to having a room um, myself. And I, when I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, then when I got a chance to do my own show, I, I had to wrap my head around how to have a room was very difficult. Yeah, I was curious about that. Yeah, so what happened there was it was Josh Brand, John Falsey, and Robin Green, and myself, and that was it. Hmm. And um, I think the way it would work is that Robin and I would go in, we would pitch a few ideas to Josh and John, they would say, I like that one, and I like that one, go develop them, then we would write outlines, we'd give hmm. no- get notes from them, um, and then we would write scripts and get notes from them. And they also used a lot of freelancers. So we, you know, um, did a lot of work with the freelancers and also, um, you know, helping them develop stories, rewriting and things like that. And then I think they, they wrote several themselves. Sure. So that's how we got it done. It, it just wasn't, it was more like college. It was like, you know, you get an assignment, you turn it in, yeah. and you get a grade, and you revise. It feels like a great way to sort of, figure out storytelling, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, maybe just for this show, those yes. were unusual shows, but, you know, you're still working out story on mm-hmm. your own or with one other person mm-hmm. and going over it and going over right. it in all these phases. So then there's great craft value in that, mm-hmm. I would imagine. There is great craft value. There's great craft value in, in Baptism by Fire. That I've, I've told this story before, and when we talked before, mm-hmm. I realized that the reward for figuring out how to do it is that with these guys they weren't people who were obsessed with running everything through their um, typewriters then Um, and so uh, the reward for doing it well um, or doing it right doing what they wanted was that they would shoot your words and that was so motivating and so uh, and that's what I wanted so I what I did is I took it upon myself to study their scripts 
just break them down and study them and figure out what they what kind of storytelling they like and why. Mm-hmm. And once I began to understand that, then I could really um, emulate the the you know template that they sure. had set, and that's how I figured it out. And that's good advice. Yeah, I still encourage anyway. people to do that yeah. because the thing is. You, you, I, and I told this story before that Josh, and Josh denies this, by the way. He doesn't remember saying this to me. That I, that I said to him once, uh, you know, I, that I felt like my, it was my job to do what he could, would mm-hmm. do if he had time. And, and he said to me at the time, I don't think that's your job. And I went, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think it is. And I, and I was able to use that because the people who have created the show and created the template for them, you need to write their show. Mm-hmm. You do not need to educate them on how it might be better or how you would do it. That doesn't work because yeah. you're not going to win that argument. Um, you can either write their show or they can rewrite you, and <laughs> those are your options. So um, it really is beneficial for people to to study the template of the showrunner and to understand how that person thinks because then you're going to create a and then you're going to be able to participate in a cohesive show. Yeah, I mean, it also suggests that the showrunners and it seems like they did are creating a clear template. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so how do you as a showrunner make sure to do that for your staff? I always have a uh, something between a mission statement and a, and a paradigm um, <laughs> that I can present to them because, because of that, because I want them to be able to understand the approach. And I want to understand their approach. I, one of the first things I learned is you you really better understand the rules of your own show. And in order to do that, you better create the rules of your own mm-hmm. show and be able to explain them to people. Parameters are everything, you know, because otherwise there's just too much space to wander. And so um, I've said before, this show, what I decided to do was have a three-pronged approach to storytelling. I wanted three different areas of storytelling, which is something that I had used before, actually, on Judging Amy. Yeah, had three different. Like, yeah. And that worked really well for me because... Um, it, it, it sort of gave me a lot of room to uh, do a lot of different stories with a lot of different tone, mm-hmm. but always have an A story that is the trajectory, is the spine that everything yeah. rests on. And so uh, when, I, when I came to do Madam Secretary, I just had to find out what, what those areas were. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ones that interest me were international event, the, the workplace itself, because it was interesting to me to show that the State Department is like anybody's mm-hmm. office. Um, and then the home, you know, the home life and the personal life right. of the character. So that's one thing I did. The other was to to have a, a, a template where we weren't going to do partisan politics. We weren't going to be running for office. We weren't campaigning for anything. We were storytelling um, in in a world where campaigning is a thing. But we weren't personally sure. running for office on any particular platform. Gotcha. Um, and that seems like, I mean, that is also the sort of template that makes sense for Amy, too. Yes. Uh, to have the, the personal, the, the sort of spine of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Joan of Arcadia feels like it could have been a much more unwieldy <laughs> the kind of thing. What kind of mission statement did you set out for that show? Uh, the mission statement for that show was, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, first of all, a retelling of the Joan of Arc story, which I've been had a lifelong fascination with, mm-hmm. because as a young girl, that was an icon I could identify with, much more than lost slippers and, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, I, I uh, really appreciated that um, that image. And so then I decided, well, I wanted to do a modern-day retelling of that story, because I had at the time, my daughter was around 11 at the time, and I tried to imagine what it would look like 
if, uh, you know, I'm interested in visionaries and, and um, you know, uh, mystics and things like that. What would happen if somebody, if that were to happen to somebody in our time? And I realized that for my daughter, for, you know, God to talk to her, first he'd have to get her iPod off, you know. <laughs> so it couldn't be some sort of fuzzy, mystical vision in the woods. It had to be somebody walking right up to you mm-hmm. in physical form and having the conversation. So, and then... I always want to, every show I do, I want to have a conversation with people. That's what I, that's what it's for. Hmm. So to start the conversation by saying, what if it works like this? What if it were like this? And um, so, so there's a pretty easy template in the beginning, which is a, a God talks to a teenage girl and every episode he tells her to do something and she either does it or she doesn't do it, but she gets to see um, the consequences of her actions hmm. or inaction. And that was an, a, a concept that was driven to me as much by an interest in, that I also have in physics as in metaphysics. And it's like, oh, let people see how their actions affect um, things. Yeah. Um, and so it's still, but it still wasn't enough of a, 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 a template for me yet because there was, I, I was so stuck on the idea that I couldn't characterize God in any one particular way. Um, because that went against everything that that I believed uh, in terms of how it really works. Um, and so the idea really took off when I understood that every time God appeared, he or she would be in different form. Hmm. And then I went, okay, that's consistent mm-hmm. with, with both um, physics and metaphysics in my world. <laughs> so <laughs> so, um, so and that, that was it. So then once I understood that that was going to be a big part of the of the formula, mm-hmm. um, I, I felt like we could do it and do it for a while. So let's let's dig in on this. I mean, I know, and this may be a strange question, but the <laughs> show is, it's really special for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, did it feel different and special to you? It did. How it so? felt, well, it felt like a complete um, sort of labor of love, vision, just something that I knew that I wanted to do, that mm-hmm. I felt frightened to do. And that's how you know you're, yeah. <laughs> you're going in the right direction. Um, I had, Judging Amy was on the air, and I was really having a good time on that show, and I couldn't think of a reason to try to create another show uh, unless it was something really, really special. And when this idea came to me, um, I realized that I was afraid of it. I didn't think I... I didn't necessarily think I could pull it off. I think it had... I had full potential to embarrass myself on a, a very in a very public way um, on a national level which not everybody gets to do <laughs> and and I just really was driven by the challenge I just hmm. thought I really think I can pull this off and if I don't I'm fine with having tried it mm-hmm. you know um, and so uh, but that you know that's that was the starting point I will say when I when I sold it too, I was very bold about selling it because I didn't mind if I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was going to write it on spec. I just so didn't believe anyone was ever going to buy this idea that I thought. I talked to my agent about it for three years before I did it, really? and every year he was like, "Maybe let's put that one away <laughs> for a while." And then finally, I said, "You know what? I I'm just going to write it. This is one of those things that I just have to show people how it would work." But while I was doing that or talking about doing that, CBS, where my show uh, Judging Amy was, had got wind of this idea and said, come in and pitch this to us. Mm-hmm. And I went in and I basically said, look, I don't want to do it unless we're going to do it. I don't want to do a version of sure. it, you know. And, uh, and so I'm fine if you guys don't want to do it, but this is the only way I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it, it's God. 
It's not a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not uh, a spirit guide. You know, we're going we're gonna, to, this is the story, and we're going to, um, this is the way we're going to tell it, and they were all in. So then, yeah. What, what do you think was going on at the time that they were open to uh, that kind of story? It was a post-9-11. That's what happened. Um, because really, the two years that I talked about it before 9-11, people were less interested than after 9-11. People were more uh, interested in at least exploring sure. ideas like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so that happened. And I also think in that moment, I, was, I had thought about it for so long, for three years. It was so crystal clear in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I will say this about pitching. When people say, you know, people always say, pitch me an idea you're passionate about. And people are sort of cynical about hearing that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that works. A lot of times it's your passion that sells them. Yeah. And so I was so clear on what it was and so passionate about doing it that they, you know, were all in for it. So, And that's, uh, that's an interesting thing. I mean, and I think it's something that a lot of us sort of struggle with mm-hmm. is this balance between the story I'm dying to tell mm-hmm. and the story that I think would sell. Right, right, right. Right, and... Rarely are they the same thing right. because the story you're dying to tell is going to be personal uh-huh. and maybe unusual. Uh-huh. Um, so how do you how do you find that balance? I mean, as you say, you lived with this story for several years uh-huh. before finally getting the chance to put it on TV. I believe, and I look. I wrote, I work in TV for a reason. I believe in trying to have a conversation with a lot of people at mm-hmm. once. That's one of the things that appeals to me. So, I. It was the fact that I believed that people were interested in this story that mm. that drove me because because my cha- I feel the challenge is always um, that you know you can make television that's as good as anything in the movies or anything anywhere mm-hmm. if if that's your goal that you can make great television even within the restrictions because sometimes the restrictions feed the creativity um, and so I believed that even though it was an unusual idea and a little bit of a scary idea, I believed it was something people would respond to because I always kind of create shows that I would want to see. And I think I'm a pretty typical Uh viewer. (laughs) Um, And um, so, I mean, I think that that is the trick, is trying to find that thing that makes it yours and is special, but also where you believe that it it can have a lot of appeal. Um, popular appeal because it's popular culture. Um, and, you know, the great thing about now, and we have all these different formats, is that you, you, don't, you don't have to be, you know, working for the masses. You can if you want to, but you can find these niche yeah. uh, shows to do, and they're valuable too. And, um, but at the time, you know, when I was developing this, you only had the really broad markets right. to work with. But I will say that when I sat down to write it halfway through, um, I, I picked up the phone to call Nina Tassler, who bought the show. Um, I was dialing the number to say, uh, we shouldn't do this. I don't know what the series is. What? <laughs> and then I just had this really strong instinct. It's none of my business what the series is. It's my business to finish the pilot. Hmm. Because that's, the tr- that's true for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have to have an idea of what the series is. But the truth is, make the pilot. And it, it's going to reveal itself to you. Well, that's um, easy to say, but these yeah. days... <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, it feels like you need to know five years worth, I know. or at least to pitch five years worth, I know. Right? Everybody and knows I had, that And I had pitched five years. And I think I that I just sort of felt like, oh, I don't think we can. I don't. It was just, it was just <laughs> performance anxiety. We're, yeah. You know, we're not going to be able to pull this off. 
But I was able to sort of just say, you know, stay in the moment and finish the pilot. And, and if it had been, if it wasn't a series, then that would have been revealed to everybody. Mm-hmm. So I had to finish it. But I feel like any sort of big ambitious idea, you had that moment where you go, I'm, I, I don't think, let's not, let's right. not go this down the This is a terrible third. idea. Let's yes. fail. <laughs> yes. um, I am curious about that gestation period mm-hmm. as well before CBS actually bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, sitting with this idea for a few years, mm-hmm. How did it start to take shape? I mean, you knew, you sort of had the things you could hang on to, mm-hmm. right? The the shifting God and the teenage girl mm-hmm. and some of the questions, I imagine. Um, and it sounds like you sort of knew what a show looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, but but how, did the, how did it start to come together? What were the bells and whistles? What were the things that sort of first presented themselves to you, the specifics of the show? Um, well, what happened was... Really, it was going to be about a, a girl whose father had some sort of prominent position because I wanted this to be a really big problem for her family. Hmm. Um, you know, if these were just sort of artsy painters right. who lived in, you know, <laughs> in Big Sur, it's not that big of a problem. But if it was the chief of police, which her father was, in a sort of conservative small town, then it's different. Hmm. Um, and uh, And so... I started thinking that it was really going to be a show that was blending these two worlds. This very the, the that's the other thing that was a, a beginning for it. I had read a biography of of Joan of Arc that really kind of framed it as a father daughter story, uh, because her father uh, dreamt that that this was going to happen to her, and he went to uh, her brothers and decided that they had to you know of course kill her, so <laughs> to prevent this from happening, um, and so that was the sort of gory details of the biography of Joan of Arc I had read, but. But I did start, it helped reframe it to me in, as a father-daughter story. What does that look like? And, um, and in a lot of ways, the show was that. But it, it, it grew more into uh, the world of these young adults, and I was really surprised by that. That's something that just happens, and that's what's great about doing series television is because it, it grows and it shows you what it is. Absolutely. And, um, and the world of the teenagers really opened up into this, this very... Um, you know, big world, and, the, and it became a sort of um, two-pronged storytelling, which is we have the world of the adults, and we have mm-hmm. the world of the kids, and they did come together. Um, and so um, that really helped open it up to something bigger. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and I don't know if you recall, but putting together a room for this show, um, were you reading the same stu- kind of things you were reading for judging Amy and later for Madam Secretary? Yes, I mean, well, yes and no. It was a little more complicated. You're always just reading for good writing and people who understand storytelling. Um, In in anything that I do, I'm also looking for humor, which isn't necessarily always in the dramatic format. So Mm -hmm. so you're you're sort of trying to find people who can do both. And and then there was the spiritual element to the show, and my only requirement was that people be open to the idea. Believers and non-believers, I didn't care. In fact, I don't don't think we had that many um, traditionally, you know, religious or even spiritual people on the staff. But I had people who were open to the discussion and interested in the idea. Sure. And um, so the interviews were a little longer than than the average writer interview, but in large part because people wanted to talk about their own thoughts and experiences and ideas right. of that world. So. Um, so that was the only thing that was different. It had this extra element that yeah. 
um, that became part of the interview. That's interesting. And then remind me, how long was the show on? Two, two seasons. And do you feel like you got to tell the stories you wanted to tell in those two seasons? I had one more season I really wanted to do. Yeah. And then, you know, the third season is a really interesting, important season because um, if, it, you know, I sort of feel like once you get a third season under your belt, then it really has room to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then people are, are in and they're watching yeah. it. The show was really on the bubble. We could have had a third season. And um, I really had a season that I wanted because I spent two years just getting people comfortable with the idea of how we were presenting God and these these yeah. dialects of God. And then the third season, I wanted to turn it up a little bit and get into good and evil. <laughs> um, so uh, I had a, a, a third season in my head that I really wanted to to get to. But um, but looking back, I sort of feel like you know those two seasons we did were perfect. They were, you know, they were exactly what I wanted to do. The fact that I got to do them, it seems still like a minor miracle to me. <laughs> and it's on DVD and people can watch it. Absolutely. Forever, I think so. people are still discovering it, which is really cool. I yeah. mean, it feels so much more. And what was it? It was 2001, like you say, right? Um, it was. No, by the time it got on the air, it was 2002 or three. Yeah. But I'm it feels like. The dates. It feels very ahead of its time in that it was presenting complicated ideas and complicated characters, Mm -hmm. you know, 16 years ago, where I think a lot of people feel like that all started with Sopranos. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, it it certainly began a spate of um, shows about, you know, spiritualism or metaphysics or whatever you want to call it, supernatural ideas, because there really wasn't anything like that happening when we did it. Um, was the was your experience on judging Amy a similar sort of satisfying one? Do you feel like you got to tell the stories you wanted to tell in that show? Um, yes, that was that was amazingly great for everybody. I mean, it was just here again. I got to go into a, a, a world that I felt had not been talked about, and still feel mm-hmm. doesn't get talked about enough, which is the juvenile court system and the social welfare system. Yeah. And um, you know. The people who work in that world, that is truly God's work. I mean, that is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's some of the hardest stories I've ever had to tell were in that world. And the research that we did um, just working with, you know, real social workers and juvenile court justice and stuff was um, eye-opening and moving and, um, you know, inspiring but also depressing sometimes. And, um, and so I was really, I really was happy that we got to go into that world and, and depict it. And, um, you know, and one of the things that was, was best uh, about that experience was that I got to do this strong female protagonist who wasn't broken mm-hmm. in any way. Um, you know, her, her personal life wasn't as strong as she wanted it to be, but she wasn't broken by it, yeah. you know. And she was, um, you know, uh, able to... Um, cope in this world where frankly our research told us that um, female judges do much better in the juvenile court mm. world than male judges they have, they, have, they have the emotional fortitude to deal with it um, and they have much more longevity in that world huh. so it was great to be able to tell a story about strong women coping, yeah. doing well and coping with humor yeah, you know. I mean I think that that is like the gateway to that show yeah. is it had a sense of humor. Yes. It was not so dark. It was not so right. grim. Where it really could have been. It could have been. Um, were you... What was your awareness of sort of the landscape of TV at the time and women in it? Uh, 
not necessarily behind the scenes, but the characters that were being given to women, especially in leads in the show. Yes. First of all, there, there weren't a lot of yeah. female lead characters. I certainly think we were the first, one of the first, if not the first, uh, drama with a, a divorced single mother hmm. female lead. That just did not happen. Yeah. And, in fact, um, that was the hardest part for people to sort of uh, adjust to, of the people when, when we were putting the show together and, and picking this female, um, this uh, uh, single mother. And uh, the question kept coming up, does this make her a bad mother? Does this make her look like a bad mother? And I was a single mother at the time, and I was like, I hope not, because <laughs> these are the, some of the decisions I have to make. Um, to hear. I yeah. mean, like, you hear the stories about the Mary Tyler Moore show being right. developed, right? And they said she couldn't be divorced mm-hmm. uh, because people wouldn't like her. And this is 30 years later. I know, I know. And you're getting the same response. But you know That's what was great about it? It was just initial jitters, and nobody stopped me from doing anything. Mm-hmm. It was just the question. Right. You know, it was almost genuinely asking me in my own experience, <laughs> is this a bad thing? Which seems worse. <laughs> I know. Um, but, you know, we did things like uh, she forgot to pick her daughter up from karate sure. and things like that. Um, and uh, But I felt, here again, I really felt that so many women, single or not, um, mothers, single or not, would re- would re- you know relate to that and mm-hmm. understand that, and um, and so so we did it, and everybody really did respond, and then you have the freedom to tell the story you want to tell. Sure, that's so. true. These shows and Madam Secretary, um, like you've had these great experiences, <laughs> which is a testament to your work. <laughs> Thank you. um, I want to hear about the ones that got away. Oh. I mean, you must have. <laughs> pitch shows over the years that either didn't get bought or sold shows that mm-hmm. didn't get made. Were there heartbreaks for you along the way? Oh, yes. Um, you know, and... Yeah, let's get into the bad stuff. Let's get into the bad <laughs> stuff. Well, you know, it's it's hard to... Uh, um, well, it's just a roll of the dice every single time. Absolutely. And you have to... You can't get into it... I, I realized after... I think that I started to feel really sad and discouraged after my third pilot I shot didn't get mm-hmm. on the air. I mean, it's one thing to write them and not get them made. That's painful. Yeah. But to make them and then watch them go away sure. is incredibly painful because it's so much work and you've bonded with the actors and you've seen the world the way it can be and then yeah. it just goes away. Um, and I realized that uh, I think that Amy was the fourth pilot I made, fourth or fifth pilot mm-hmm. that I made. But after the third one didn't get made, I realized, oh, I don't, I can't do this. This is too heartbreaking. And then I realized, you know, of course, if you, if you, if you don't play the game, you don't get to win. So um, I realized, oh, you just have to keep doing it because something's going to fall through the cracks. I mean, or something is going. Maybe that's a bad metaphor. <laughs> it's, is something feels, is <laughs> something is some. There's going to be a moment where it all comes together, and and you get a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happened. Everything fell into place. It was the right time, uh, right place, and the right time for everything to come together on the show. And then it, and then it worked. Um, so, and then really, what what you have to do is when you get a shot like that, you really have to double down about making it work. You, you know. And but anyway, that's the success sure. story. The failure story <laughs> is, um, you know, uh, I think that William Goldman in one of his books um, wrote about the fact that. He couldn't, there was no, you know, he, just as many movies that he wrote didn't get made as did. Um, and mm-hmm. the ones 
that didn't get made were just as good as the ones that mm -hmm. did. You really can't point to any reason in terms of the quality of the work. It really has to do with the timing. Mm -hmm. and, and um, So I have a lot of those. I have a lot of pilots that I loved and would still like to revisit that got made and, and didn't make it. So um, if you want to hear about some of those. I'm curious. Okay. I, I'm curious just because, like, I, I'm, I want to know what the stories you want to tell are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, I did a um, uh, I did a pilot with um, was the CBS. I'm trying to think. They're pretty much all with CBS uh, with um, Lena Headey and Peter Dinklage. Ironically oh, enough, okay. yes. And um, I think that's how they met. Was on my pilot that's and uh, called Ultra, which was about a female superhero. Uh -huh. um, and it was the same season that Heroes came on, but different, Interesting. a different network. Um, and it really was about, it was based on, a, there was a format, there was a graphic novel that it was based on, but I just sort of took it, you know, took it and made it my own. Sure. And it was just about a woman becoming super and not understanding why. And it was all based in science. It was all based in this idea of punctuated Evolution, which I think other people have written about, and maybe even heroes use that paradigm. But um, and in, in this story, her her super her hyper vigilance was something that came out of her difficult childhood, hmm. and um, and so she was just hyper vigilant, and that just sort of evolved into being super and having superpowers. Um, so that was a great female story to tell, where where you're you're talking about a, a strong uh, female. Story, mm -hmm. but it's it, but it's actually supernatural again. But it's also based in something a bit real, mm -hmm. and um, and then it you know it was a you know a superhero show, but it also had a lot of humor in it and all of that, and um, and uh, so that was that went away and that was sad. <laughs> was that was the original material something that was brought to you to the develop? the format was brought to me, okay. and um, I developed a, I developed the pilot. Um, sure. And um, I'm told you can still find it at Comic Con sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no yes. That's funny. Um, and uh, then I did um, a pilot called Demons, which is about an exorcist, um, that was really interesting and, you know, uh, scary to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, with Ron Eldor, directed by Mick Jackson, and that was a really... It, again, it was sort of grounded in reality. It was a supernatural idea that was grounded in reality about an ex-priest, actually, who was sort of has to leave um, the priesthood because he keeps performing exorcisms that aren't sanctioned by the church. So he's now gone into business for himself as an exorcist, and he's outside the church. But again, I tried to take that idea and um, have a, you know, just sort of uh, intermingle the idea of all the supernatural activity with a normal guy's mm -hmm. life, you know. And um, it was a bit darker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was, were two. And then, um, uh, I'm trying to think, those are the biggest, those are the biggest. Yeah, I mean, it seems things. like you, you, you like the metaphor uh -huh. of those shows. I mean, Demons does not, even even Ultra does not sound so far from Joan. Yeah, they weren't. You know? That was all in my, uh, Ultra was before Joan. No, no, they were all after Joan. Joan was where I sort of launched myself into this world mm -hmm. of um, writing about supernatural mm -hmm. things. But again, um, basing them in, in reality as much as possible. Um, so I did a spate of those mm -hmm. for a while. Um, and tell me, Please about prose writing. Oh, 
Um, what, what, what are the books? I'm sorry, I don't know... Uh, any of any of the young adult novels. Oh, that's all right. My my whole catalog is on Amazon, and it's all um, available through my um, website called okay. thehallmonitor.com. So um, I started out as a young adult novelist, and I wrote um, four or five of those, and then started writing just mainstream adult fiction. Which most of at the beginning of my work there was um, what I like to call Southern dysfunction. It was <laughs> basically uh, a write about the South because I'm from there. And um, and then uh, it sort of traveled uh, with me through to L.A. My last two novels were set in Los Angeles. Mm. One was called The Music Teacher, which is about a music teacher. Um, and, uh, and then the last one was called Charisma, which was, a, it was basically a two-hander. It's a story between a doctor, a pure scientist, and his relationship with his a psychiatrist and his relationship with his patient who is have, believes she's having angel visitations. So it's a dialogue between science and religion, mm-hmm. which is something that interests me. Um, what it, I feel like, having talked to you now, I know the answer, but <laughs> what are you getting out of writing prose that you don't get out of television? Well, for a long time, it, it was just uh, creative control. It was where I got to go and everything... It was just exactly the story I wanted to tell, the way I wanted to mm-hmm. tell it, and um, and I honestly um, and I still do it for those reasons, or I do it because I have an idea and I have to sit and think, what is this idea about? Hmm. Um, for example, this book I did called The Music Teacher was about um, you know I'm a musician and I play in bands and I and I record music and all that kind of stuff, and I got. I became very interested in the discussions that my musician friends and I would have all the time about music and physics and things like that. And I, um, while that was all happening, I decided I was going to learn how to play the violin because why not, you know? <laughs> and, oh, you're um, one of these. <laughs> and so I went, I started taking violin lessons and I loved the instrument. I mean, I never was going to be uh, great or even good at it, um, but I just wanted to learn it and understand what it was about. And, um, but I became so fascinated by my teacher who didn't want to teach me, who was angry at me for wanting to learn. What? I know. And I'm like, what is this? Okay, I have to put the instrument down and go and go think about this for That's a while. A fascinating character. It was a very fascinating character. So I had to, to break down and, and, and think about her and think about what her story was and think about, you know, and, and of course the answer is that a lot of, you know, um, people who are teaching music not even most, I'm not going to say most, but this particular one didn't want to be teaching music. She wanted to be a musician. Right. And, and so I had to go look at what, what, how does that happen? How does it go wrong? What happens when people who have not just teachers in music, but teachers of anything who don't want to teach them? And how different it is when you have a teacher who does want to teach you. and mm-hmm. what, what a gift that is. Um, and, it's, and so I took this character and took her through the journey of, of what went wrong with her, you know, Lost dreams, and then what went right with it? Because it became a story about her and this teacher. I mean, this student she has, who's a prodigy, hmm. who doesn't want it, who doesn't care, and yeah. and her her frustration with that, and then ultimately her growth. It's really the book is really a celebration of teachers more than music, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, so things like that. Well, an idea like that will come to me, and I'll say, "What is that?" And yeah. then I'll realize, "Oh, it's a novel. You mm-hmm. have to sit down and write it." Um, yeah, does the material sort of tell you yes. where it belongs? Yes. Uh, I mean, it feels like that. There's no TV show in that. There's no TV show. There could be a movie in that. Sure. But um, but once I've written something, I, I'm kind of finished writing it, and I hmm. don't want to write it again. You know. Yeah. So um, 
so so I think and the you know the gift of being alone with an idea and seeing where it takes me on my own time and my own way is why I still write prose. How do you find the time? I well, <laughs> lately I don't. Yeah. So um, and the other thing too is you know I worked on the show with Josh Brand and John Falsey called I'll Fly Away, which is mm-hmm. about the civil rights movement in the sixties, and and then later. Um, Northern Exposure, which I only worked on one season, but they were both examples of, of, of where I got to write for TV, and it felt a lot like writing fiction. Mm-hmm. It felt a lot like what I'm describing to you, just yeah. getting to tell exactly the story you want to tell. I mean, you still have the time pressure, but you get to tell it the way you want to tell it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of cut into my really strong desire to keep prose going, because yeah. I felt like I was, I was using those muscles. Right. Um, and with um, Madam Secretary, I feel like that too. It's a very high bar for what we're trying to do on the show, and it really keeps me completely occupied. <laughs> um, but I will. I'll, I'll write some. I'll write some more books. <laughs> well, listen, I don't know. You're playing music. You're, <laughs> have you written about music? I mean, uh, other than the music teacher? No, that was my big uh, attempt to write about music. Um, and then the rest of the time, I, you know, try to write music and, um, and record what it. What kind so. of music? It's, um, uh, well, it started in, um, well, it started as something we call alternative country rock. It really started in bluegrass for me because that's a discipline that I studied for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it's all sort of in there. What do you um, play? I play guitar okay. and sing, and I write the songs. Um, and so uh, it's all rooted in that, but then I'm a huge rock fan. I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I'm, it all, it's all sort of um, that world. And the last record I did was a really eclectic mix of um, some countries and blues, some rock, some pure pop for now people. Who, are your, who do you listen to? Like, who are your bluegrass guys? Um, well, I listen to the obvious bluegrass guys, you know, like right. Stanley the Brothers. Ones, yeah, Stanley yeah. Brothers and Doc Watson and all those guys, and then people who are influenced by that music. Everybody. I listen to everybody because, you know, uh, because I, I thought and wrote about music for a long time yeah. in my early career. So Bruce Springsteen was the biggest influence, mm-hmm. and then all the people who influenced him, of course. Um, what and, is it about Bruce? Um... It's it's everything um, <laughs> because when I found that music, it was somebody who had an origin story a lot like mine. Mm-hmm. I mean, the New Jersey Italian version of that, and not the no, Southern <laughs> um, yeah, female version of that. Yeah, yeah. But it was coming from no coming from the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. um, having uh, a lot to say, but not sure anybody was going to be interested in hearing about it. Um, kind of a poetic view of the world that uh, I wanted to sort of blend with a very unlikely medium, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and then I heard all that, and I heard a lot about, you know, I heard a lot of great music, and I heard a lot of poetics, and I heard a lot of um, uh, the idea of, of a certain, of, of class Issues, things like that. I heard a lot about personal responsibility and things that were hmm. eye-opening to me at that time in my life, and um, it just pulled me into this this whole world. And and uh, you know, the moment for me was hearing. Well, the river came out when I was in college, and I was someone who you got to understand. I was a woman in the South in you know uh, in the eighties, and I had 
an idea that I wanted to, to be a writer and all these things that weren't necessarily, um, I couldn't necessarily see a clear path to it. Um, and I heard uh, from, from the title track a line that was, is a dream, is a dream alive, it don't come true, or is it something worse? And I realized, oh, those are my choices, you know, <laughs> really. And I don't even know if the, the line is meant to be interpreted that way, but that's how I interpreted no, that it. Oh, that is so hard yes, when yeah. you're in the right time, the right place, right. and the right words, right? Right. Um, so and I would imagine you're still finding inspiration in uh-huh. music. Uh-huh. More than other uh, media? Um, no, I sort of find it everywhere. Um, but... Um, it was just a great form of expression for me for a while because here again it sort of combined a lot of things um, that interested me very early in life like poetry mm-hmm. that comes uh, writing lyrics and um, and then just the the added layer that you can give a story when you add music to it it's not it's yeah. like nothing else yeah. <laughs> and um and then you know, for for me, music is a release. It's there's nothing really writing on it except it's just a complete form of expression, and also it's a social life for me, because you know it's it's incredibly fun to play in a band, and um, and that's what it's there for. But obviously, if you get together, if you if you write ten songs, then you're going to want to record ten songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you record them, you're going to play them out in the world, and and it has been something actually that helped me get over my introversion, learning how to. Um, stand sure, on the stage and play music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a controlled environment to an extent. To an extent, yes. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, we'll just wrap up by asking what uh, what are you watching on TV these days? Oh, okay. <laughs> Have you seen any movies that you love? Have you heard albums that you love? You get to answer all of it. Have you read anything great lately? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, ironically, I just finished reading Bruce Springsteen's memoir. <laughs> Which I, everybody's reading about. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I'm so behind in watching television for a, a number of reasons. One is that that just doesn't feel like what I want to do when I get finished writing television sure. all day. Um, and um, and I also just feel so far behind that I'll never catch up. That's what, you know, what I'm planning. I did see Stranger Things the first season. I did see Catastrophe. Um, I do like so Veep. Um, and that's about where I am. <laughs> and um, with, with lots of plans to catch up um movies i haven't seen any uh contemporary movies um i haven't been to movies in a long time it's just one of those weird things that you never get to do or i never find myself also i've been caught up in politics exactly i feel like none of us have taken in much more than cnn and msnbc and you know yeah well i tell people that what my life was like this year was i go to work and i write about politics and then i come at home and i watch politics because that's my homework yeah and then i do that until my head hurts and then i watch chopped and then i go to bed <laughs> um but it was interesting that you asked because i was watching it was on the loop today the um the movie the assassination of uh jesse james by mm-hmm. the coward robert ford which is one of my favorite movies in the last decade it's a brilliant movie and and uh, on every level and i look at it and think that's you know that's inspiring that's you know that looks like something that i would like to not not a western or anything like that mm-hmm. but like to try to do create some sort of labor, labor of love in a in that format one of these days so yeah well, look, you, you find time to fit all the yeah. writing. Do Don't record a song, just write a movie. Right. I'm sure it's the same amount of time. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you. 
Now leaving Nerdist.com.